Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And while you're at it, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 8. We are slowly working through Ephesians, as many of you know. I think this is week like 43 or 44. Uh, the number keeps on climbing, by God's grace. <clears throat> working through just little pieces at a time. Today we'll be focusing on verse 14 of chapter 4. Um, I want to read a few verses kind of leading, that, leading up to verse 14, just to set the context here. <clears throat> at least a little bit. Pardon my my voice. I have gotten sick again, um, so I'm got the sniffles and the throat stuff, and and just got over this like you know a month ago. And my goodness, it's back again. I guess that's what it means to have four kids, five and under, and boys. You know, right? Like keep your hands out of your mouth, right? You know what I'm saying? Like it's just a simple thing. Keep your hands. You know, and anyways, so here we go, <clears throat> part of my voice, I might have to cough a few times, but here we go, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 14, we'll focus on 14 this morning. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers <clears throat> to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Let me read again verse 14. So that... We may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Let's pray. Father, I pray as we study your word this morning, as we look to Ephesians and a little bit to Mark this morning, that that our hearts would be, first of all, open and encouraged by your word and Father, that, uh, that we would learn as those who are your people to delight in what you've called us to do, to delight in the life you've called us to, Father, to delight ultimately in the giver of this life that we have. Father, help us to, to not be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Father, such is our culture today. Such is the world since the garden. Where Satan comes in and issues his very cunning alternative wind of doctrine to the doctrine of God. And Adam and Eve flow with this wind of doctrine. And such we find ourselves in need of a Savior. And so, Father, I pray that we would, through the power of the Spirit, break that pattern of humanity in our own lives and in our lives as a church. And, Father, I pray this for your glory and in the power of your Son, Jesus' name and resurrection. Amen. Amen. So leave your finger there in Ephesians 4. Why don't you go with me to Mark chapter 8. I'm going to go to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8 is going to help kind of set some stage for and give some kind of a, a little bit of a help to understanding verse 13 of Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to fly through Mark 8. I'm just going to read, make a few comments, read a little bit, make a few comments, read a little bit, make a few comments, then we'll be done with Mark chapter 8, that is. And then we'll go spend the other, you know, hour in Ephesians 4. <clears throat> so here we go. I'm going to start in verse 14. 
But right before verse 14, and I'm not going to read this because most of you should be familiar with the feeding of the 4,000 people. Yes, it's 4,000 here, not five. But the feeding of the 4,000. Starting verse 14. So Jesus just got done feeding the 4,000. It's very important to understand that as we read. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. This is the disciples. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Skip verse 15, verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not, do, do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Just a couple observations. I'm not going to exposit or preach this passage. Just using this passage as a help for Ephesians 3.13 or 4.13. The disciples had eyes to see, but they did not see. Right? They saw this. They saw what happened. But they didn't actually have eyes to see what happened. They had ears to hear, but in some weird way, they still did not hear. Like, did you, do you not see? Do you not understand? Do you not remember? I want you to consider this, all of you, myself included. Do you have ears to hear, but are you actually hearing? You see, this wasn't an ability to learn on the disciples' part. They saw it plain as day. It wasn't a, a learning ability. It was an eyesight ability. This wasn't the teacher's fault. It was Jesus. He was teaching them perfectly. And yet they still did not see. They still did not understand. They still did not quite get it. They weren't blind, but they still could not see. So is it possible that either right now or at some point in the future that you could have eyes to see but not really see at all? Could you have ears that hear, but you're not really hearing at all? Let's go on to verse 22 here. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. But they look like trees walking. Must have been watching Lord of the Rings. <laughs> then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. And he opened his eyes. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Do not even enter the village. Notice. That the man was no longer blind, but he still couldn't quite see. There I see men, but they look like trees. He wasn't blind, but he still wasn't seen. Then Jesus touched his eyes again, and he saw everything clearly. Let's go on to verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Listen, Peter answered him, You are the Christ. I mean, look at that. Peter confessing with his mouth that Jesus is the Messiah, the saving one. 
Make good note of this. Let's read on. Verse 33, the very next, the very next verse. But turning, and I'm sorry, and he began to teach them, verse 31, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Listen to verse 32. It's very interesting. And he said this plainly. And Jesus said this plainly. He said it plainly. And then Peter, what happens? What happens with Peter? He takes him to the side and he begins to rebuke Jesus. Jesus has just said that the Son of Man, that the Christ is going to do this and Peter takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. See, Peter confessed that he was Christ, but he wasn't seen. Peter didn't get it. He saw it. He heard it, but he didn't see it. And he didn't hear it. Verse 33, But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Listen, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So what happens? Jesus rebukes Peter. He rebukes Peter. And in fact, he even says, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus, a couple things here. Peter saw, but he didn't see. Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus also noticed here too that Jesus recognizes a deceitful scheme behind even Peter himself. That there's something going on behind Peter. And he says, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but you're setting your mind on the things of man. I would argue that Peter's beliefs here are not what we'll talk about today. Settled convictions. They were just, as my notes say here, emotional feel-goodies. Oh yes, it feels good in the moment to declare that Jesus is the Christ, that you are the Christ. But then, as we'll see even later where Peter denies Jesus after the garden and Jesus is taken away to go to the cross, you could tell that these things, that he has eyes, like he's seen, but he's not really seen. What happened here is Peter's maturity in the faith was revealed for the immaturity that it was. You see, anyone can claim to believe all the same things as someone else. But only those truly convinced of the belief will have a life of stability that proclaims that belief. Does that make sense? What I'm saying is that you can say you have a belief, but if your life isn't in accordance with that belief, then you don't really believe it. And that's where Paul is driving us in verse 13. What he's going at is that you don't have settled beliefs, settled convictions. And what's happening then is when another belief comes in, it blows you around and flips you around. And so he says to them in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, he says, So that we may no longer be. What is he saying? He's assessing their maturity. He's assessing where they're at in the faith. And so the first thing I would encourage us to do is the first point on your paper there if you're taking notes, and that is assess your spiritual maturity both humbly and corporately. Assess your spiritual maturity both with humility and think about it corporately. Very brief, because I'm not going to hound on these, you know, concentrate on these too much, but we see humility as a theme in this passage leading up to verse 14. And we see this idea of corporate unity being a major theme in chapter 4. So he says in verse 14, so that we may no longer be. What's he saying? Paul is first telling them that they are not what they should be or where they should be and who they could be. 
He's saying that we may no longer be children. What's he saying? You're children. But we don't want to be children. We want to stay here. This is not where Christ's followers stay. That their condition was not good. Paul associates himself even with them as he says, we, that we may no longer be. I mean, how's that for, well, I, I think I, I'm no longer a child in the faith. I mean, here's Paul saying, so that we may no longer be children in the faith. I mean, I think Paul probably knew the Bible than most of us in this room, at least most of us. And he says, we may no longer be, so that we may no longer be. We're going to do these things. God has given us these things so that we may no longer be. I want to remind you of what we talked about in Mark 8 for just a moment. Someone who is not blind, but they cannot see. So what is what he's referring to? He's talking, about, he's talking about children. He's addressing Christians. We know this from the beginning of, of Ephesians. He's addressing faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And he's telling them. So these are people who are not blind to the truth of God, but they're not seeing the truth. They're not seeing it clearly. There's still things that, that look like trees when they should be clearly seen as men. So they're, they're not blind, but they're not seeing. They're children. They're in the faith, but they're children in the faith. So it encourages the first thing as we think about it, what Paul is helping them see is, is where their maturity is at so they can address the problem, so they can address the situation. And I think many times in our own lives that we don't accurately assess the problem, so we don't accurately get to the solution. The first thing we need to do is have a humble assessment of our own faith condition, of our own journey with Christ. A humble, accurate assessment. I want to give you Romans 12.3. It says, "For For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That verse is worthy of preaching on its own. But we need to realize that, that we can say we believe lots of things and think highly about ourselves in our beliefs and in reality still have eyes that are not actually seen. Does that make sense? I, I want to drive this point home real hard today. And we can say we believe things and not actually believe them. That we can confess Jesus is Lord, and then when he says, well, my lordship looks this way, we go, no way. So then do you actually believe he's Lord? No, you don't. So I, we, we, we're, we are awesome at convincing ourselves that we are certain people or we are certain ways, when in reality we're not. You can say that Jesus is Christ and still follow your own ways of even the very core idea of redemption. You can say that Jesus is the one who redeems us and then find your own ways to redeem yourself each and every day. When you think about Christ as Lord, who do you submit to? If you believe, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you're saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. Then who do you submit to each day? Who do you submit to in the spending of your time? Did he tell you to watch TV for two hours instead of reading the Bible? I'm not picking on TV. I like watching TV. Or how about being on the internet till all night? Or, or, or reading something else? I just want you to think about these questions. I'm not trying to be mean. I just want you to learn to have a humble assessment of yourself. Let me remind you back there in verse 3 of, of that Romans 12 passage is that he says that the measure of faith you have is the one God has assigned so you have no right to even be prideful of where you even might assess yourself to be. I want to also encourage you that we get the right assessment 
by looking outward, not uh, by looking outward sometimes, not always just looking inward. Right? We look to the scriptures. If you want an, a humble assessment of your life, look to the scriptures. It will give you a humble assessment. We look to the body of Christ, especially those given in authority over us to help us with a humble assessment of ourselves. As the church in Ephesus is clearly receiving Paul, who's in authority over them, his assessment of where they're at. I mean, let me just give you a, a real cheap, and this might feel like a cheap shot. If it does, then good. If you don't have a clear pattern of being in the Scriptures as though they are the bread of life, studying them many times, then it's more than likely you're still a child in the faith. Because what your assessment is of yourself is that you're good without it. That you've got it figured out, you don't need it. Let me help you with that assessment. You may not think consciously that way, but that's the way your life is proclaiming. So we need a humble and accurate assessment. If they don't realize that they're children of the faith and that, this, that they're being tossed to and fro by the winds, then they're just going to continue being children of the faith, being tossed to and fro by the winds of every doctrine. And that's the way many of us, even in this room, live our lives. We don't realize that we're children in the faith and that we just keep being tossed back and forth. That's not what's meant for God's children. That's what Paul's railing against here. That's what he's fighting against. God's children, listen, I, I have this at the end of my sermon, but I, I want to say it now. Many of us, walk, I, I see you guys walk in to house gathering, to service on Sunday morning, and I know like, you walk around beaten up, just beaten up by this world, by this brokenness that's around us, that you get tossed to and fro even by the lack of solidarity in your own faith, that even as winds of other doctrines come by, that you are tossed to and fro. And it just breaks my heart. That's not what's meant for God's children. It breaks my own heart when I see it in my own life. When I see my life and I'm enjoying a day and thankful to God and worshiping Him, and, and then all of a sudden, this happened just a couple days ago, and all of a sudden I get a phone call. It was a Thursday afternoon. I get a phone call by a, a, a gentleman that's, uh, that doesn't go to this church. He's not a Christian. And, and we're, we're talking, and, and he had kind of an issue and, and something that we needed to reconcile. And, and all of a sudden, like, like, it was not even anything bad. It's like sinful. It was nothing like that. It was just, and my heart just goes, whoosh, and it's gone. And it's not broken over sin. It's broken over because I, I think maybe my honor has been lost. And it hadn't. And I needed to seek reconciliation with this brother. But, but it, for that moment, what I was believing was that my life and fulfillment and my, my plan is, is all based upon what other people think of me. What's that called? We call it fear of man. That in that moment, for then the next day, right? And I see myself over that day, I'm just being tossed to and fro inside my own heart, my own mind, that I didn't enjoy my kids like I should have. I didn't care for my wife like I should have. And I look back on that and I go, that's not the way it was supposed to be. There was something in my mind that was not a settled conviction, something that would hold me tight through the wind. So we need a humble and accurate assessment because that will lead to appropriate action. That's what Paul's doing here, giving them a humble, accurate assessment so that we can get to the right and appropriate action. <clears throat> For some of us, although we would never say this, we live as though we're super Christians in the faith. I've kind of mentioned this already, but it's displayed by a lack of diligent study of the Scriptures and a study under the equipping of your elders. Again, we may not be saying that explicitly, but does your life proclaim that? I got this. I got this. But you see, an accurate assessment will lead every last one of us 
to leaning on the scriptures as the bread of life. We will lean on the scriptures as the bread of life. You know, one of the most encouraging things, maybe slightly discouraging, but that as I study the scriptures week in, week out, like, it never fails. As I open my Bible, I figure out how much I just do not know and how much I need to know. How much I do not know and how much I need to know. You see, because our goal is one mature man. The danger is many immature children. The goal, if we're reading Ephesians here rightly, our goal is one mature man, but the danger is many immature children. I love it when the scripture scriptures, when God is kind to use a metaphor or an example that's not going to be lost on any of us, okay? If you have any dealings with children, you get what he's saying here. So we may no longer be children. I want you to notice just two main things from this passage here. The first is this. Notice that mature is being contrasted with children. I know it's maybe obvious, but we can't miss it, and I need to make it explicit. In the verses before, I'm not going to read them, he's talking about maturity. That's being contrasted with immaturity as displayed in children. So notice this, is this contrast. So let me encourage you, we are leaving behind. What he is going to push us towards is leaving behind at first, the first part here is ignorance and gullibility, and instead embracing corporate maturity and discernment. So we're leaving behind. Leaving behind ignorance and gullibility for corporate maturity and discernment. That's why he's contrasting here. Maturity versus children. 1 Corinthians 14.20 says, Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. What's he mean by that? Is don't be a child in the faith. Grow. Work at it. Work hard at it. So we're leaving behind ignorance. Don't be a child in your thinking. You know what this means? Like, like I get it. I, I grew up in multiple different churches, same denomination. You know, I heard the same sermon week in and week out. Jesus loves you. It's all by grace we're saved. And that was kind of the thing we hoot and holler about it, sing ten verses at the end, and all is well. Well, just as I am. But, uh, like, don't be children in your thinking. We have to engage the mind. We have to engage the mind. The, the Christian faith is not just some active supernatural faith kind of thing that we've kind of made it into be. It's a, there's an engaging. We just got done talking last week about a knowledge, a unity in the knowledge of the Son of God, knowing Him, having eyes that can see and are actually seen, and ears that are hearing and actually hearing. But if we're going to, listen, and this, I'm building this off of past weeks, but if we're going to become the bride that is ready for Jesus or the building that is ready for God to indwell, then we have to leave behind this ignorance. Much of what we do sin-wise is done out of ignorance. This is why Paul is calling us to a knowledge of the Son of God. Like we, we, we really want to make like the Christian life this kind of weird supernatural thing where I can't like overcome things and sin and you know I just just, just got to pray real hard. Well, certainly we all of us need to pray more, but like a knowledge of the Son of God. There's a very practical aspect to that. There's a Spurgeon quote. I'm going to butcher it, but Spurgeon quote says something like, "Show me, show me a worn out Bible, and I'll show you a Christian who's not." Basically, the idea is that he knows the Son of God. So he's not battered and torn like 
the scriptures are, the Bible. Because he, why? Because he knows the Son of God. I mean, certainly there's ways in which he's going to be battered, but at least in his heart and in his mind, he's going to be rested as he's been attuned to God and knowing his Son. Listen, there's no excuse for ignorance, right? Some will say, well, I've never, never had someone to teach me, or I wasn't in a good church. Listen, I, I, I know, and, and, I, and I feel your pain. But you had the Scriptures, and you had the Holy Spirit. You had the Scriptures, and you had the Holy Spirit. That's at least two out of the three major graces now, I get it. The, the church is a big part of that, okay? I don't want to undermine that. This is what we're talking about here, the value of the church in, in this. But we have two out of the three major graces. I look at, I mean, this is an indictment even in my own life. And two of the three. That's incredible. So we are supposed to be, as mature Christians, leaving behind this ignorance. <clears throat> so the goal is what? So that we are no longer children but mature and again we all get that metaphor the second kind of big thought underneath this main thought here is that children plural is contrasted with one mature man singular okay follow me here he just talked about in the verses prior to this one mature man thinking of corporate unity and that's contrasted with children, plural. What's he doing? What else are we leaving behind? We're leaving behind ignorance. We're leaving behind gullibility. We're leaving behind this ability to be tossed to and fro. And here, another part, we are leaving behind, on, headed towards mature man, we're leaving behind individualism. We're leaving behind doing life on our own. We're leaving this behind. Philippians 3, verse 15 through 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. You're just hearing echoes of what he said in chapter 3, I'm sorry, chapter 4, when he says, verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. What is he talking about in verse 13? He's talking about all of us together attaining to the unity of this faith, this knowledge of the Son of God. That we're doing this together. We're leaving behind individualism. There's a leaving behind of individual, I, I know we talk about this a lot, I know, but it's a major component of this passage. So I'm going to keep, as long as it's a major component, we're going to keep talking about it. We need to always be fleshing out what individualism looks like. Always be fleshing this out. Let me help you with something. You can be choosing biological family and still be about individualism. Like it feels like I'm choosing my my family, but understand, I mean, the way dynamically God has made us is, like, particularly husband and wives, you're like one flesh, right? So there's like an individualism to that unit, even, like to those couple that, that we have to be careful that we don't even just depend on our spouse to, to do life together with the body. Be, I mean, here's just practically, your spouse is going to have your back a lot of the times. Maybe not all the time. I mean, unless they hate you, then they might just, nah, you know, just get on top of everything, you know. But for the most part, like, the, you know, when you begin to think a lot alike, you begin, I mean, just practically, there's benefits to having other people outside of your family unit. But I just want to be careful. I'm not, I'm not trying to draw strict lines of what all this looks like. I'm just saying, be aware it could be individualism even in the midst of a group called your family. How often, here's another question, how often do you seek after God on your own? Just on your own. Listen, you can even come to Sundays, house gatherings even, and still seek God on your own. Now again, I'm not trying to paint exactly what this looks like. I just want to put it out there for you to think about and apply to your own life. 
Could it still be individualism? Let me give you another area where, I, where individualism can, can display itself. When you come to house gathering, do you come with good insights on that passage to help build up your brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe you're living by individualism. Like it's a grand opportunity to build each other up in the faith, particularly pertaining to the passage that we're working through. Just think about that. Could it be individualism? Another example of individualism is floating in and around shallow relationships. Listen, individualism only goes out the window as we are known deeply by other people. It only goes out as we are known deeply by other people. I'm not saying it has to be the whole church. It doesn't even have to be your pastors. But we are known deeply by other people. What I mean by that it means like they know a lot of your shame. They know a lot of your struggles. They know those things. And they're in the position to encourage you in those and to build you up. We don't need lots of really shallow relationships. We don't need lots of just, hi, how are you today? We need people in our lives who know us. So we, we can't give this excuse of, I, want to, oh, I just want to know all these other people and so we can avoid deep relationships with just a couple people. I would ask you this, do you avoid relationships that make you feel uncomfortable? That press in on your sin, is what I'm saying particularly. That press in and it starts to not feel too good. Like you feel that tension. Uh, th- they might need to learn some wisdom on how to better talk to you. I'm not denying that. I'm just saying, do you avoid those kind of relationships? Because we're never going to leave behind individualism for maturity in the faith as one mature man if we don't leave that behind. If we don't get this You see, this idea of this mature man, he's talking about this body that is so unified, that it's so unified particularly in Jesus, that it looks and appears like one body, one man. Right? A new man in Christ. Let me quote to you something Rob Turner, pastor in the area, said recently. The love of God will necessarily cause us to bring others into our lives because that same love brought us into His. Let me read that again. The love of God will necessarily cause us to bring others into our lives because that same love brought us into His. So listen, if you don't have one or two people that know you deeply and intimately and are pushing in to your life and your struggles and your sin, then you are floating in individualism. If you run from those relationships, you are not leaving behind individualism. But we are leaving this behind. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will be leaving this behind. We are dying to self and picking up a corporate cross, if you will. Now I get this. I get it. This isn't for some people. This thought of leaving behind individualism and and embracing a corporate, I get it. That doesn't grow huge churches. But this is for God's people. This isn't an option. This is for blood-washed sinners found wrapped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what this is for. I'm not saying we won't struggle with it, but I'm saying we'll be headed in that trajectory. 
So just think about it. Is there one or two people in this body that know you intimately? I would push you towards that. Now think about this with me. Just again, kind of going back to the past few verses that we were on, but God has given much to us so that we can leave behind immaturity and instability. Clearly, He's given us the Word through what? Through the apostles and the prophets. That's why we have the Scriptures as a gift to us. And He gives us elders, pastors, teachers, shepherds, to help the body move forward in maturity and leave behind immaturity and instability. It doesn't feel good, I know. For those who are following, like you, you get this, you see that, you kind of, yeah, it's, sometimes it's painful, but, but God's given us these gifts, the scriptures and the pastors to help move us through this. God has also given the body in general gifts, Right? Spiritual gifts to help each other and encourage each other. So are you using them? Are you utilizing these gifts for others? The last main point is this. In this passage. Is that we must develop settled convictions. We must develop settled convictions. Now, now listen, I, <clears throat> I'm kind of reaching ahead a little bit into verse 15 and 16 and 17. But for right now, so I'm just going to kind of touch on this and we'll, we'll develop this more and then over the next few weeks. <clears throat> he says, So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, in deceitful schemes. So what was their struggle? What was the struggle in the church in Ephesus? Their doctrine had been endangered and perverted by various currents of wind. False instruction. He says here, every wind of doctrine, that, okay, that every wind of doctrine stands over and against the unity of the faith and the knowledge to which the readers are to attain in verse 13. You're to attain this unity of the faith, but here it's being contrasted with every wind of doctrine. Also notice, I think Paul here, by, he says, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, I don't think he's, he's saying not man doing this, but I think Paul's recognizing that Satan himself is behind this evil scheme. Why, why do you think that? Look at 2 Corinthians eleven three. He says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul recognizes, Paul remembers, Paul knows that Satan is behind these deceitful schemes. I think that's what Jesus is picking up on when Peter comes against him. Get behind me, Satan. I think he yes, right now in that moment, Peter's not living out his faith in Christ, but, and that's wrong. But Jesus also knows that what's behind that is a greater evil than even Peter. I think what Paul has in mind in this overall thought here that we just read is the ongoing general dangers which were going to be or were currently a hindrance to those not firmly grounded in the faith. Not firmly grounded in their beliefs. They were unable, they were not coming to settled convictions so therefore, they're not able to evaluate various other forms of teaching. And the result was them falling prey to these other doctrines. So let's talk about our struggle. Let me give you some examples of our own winds of doctrine. Listen, like I said last week, like we don't always have to turn to false teachers you know, that have a, a showing to just get false teaching. It's all around us. Let me understand that, right? It's all around us. It's on TV. It's in our own hearts. It's in our own minds. False teaching is everywhere. Just a couple examples, right? The American dream. Or that I can have satisfaction and be fulfilled in anything but Jesus. I mean, these are teachings that we fall prey to regularly. 
There's some more subtle teachings that if we're not careful, we will fall prey to these winds of doctrine. Here's some examples. I need to be sufficient on my own. I need to be able to handle it on my own. Again, what's that? That's an embrace of individualism and self-sufficiency. Or how about this? Care for the physical man is more important than the inner man, the spiritual man. Another subtle teaching of our day is that the law is bad for us. We just want grace. No, the law, if viewed and understood rightly, is grace to God's people. All right, I have to deal with my own shame. And I've got to deal with it my way. Or another subtle teaching of our day is I am what I do. And my performance brings me meaning. Just a selection. I'm sure I hit everyone in this room with at least, by at least one of those. These are subtle, these are winds of doctrine that are a little more subtle that permeate our hearts and lives all the time. The world is trying to pull us with cunningness and deceitful schemes to a life apart from Christ. The grass is always greener somewhere else where you have more freedom. Another cunning scheme is leading us to believe that we have the right to be gods of our own lives. So what do we need? What do we need? What do we need? I mean, so Paul just said this in verse 13. I'm going to flesh it out a little bit more. But we need unified, settled convictions that hold us in place. Get what I said. It's, we're on the passive end of this. Our active work is developing the settled convictions. And then when the winds come, the settled convictions hold us in place. What's, so let me ask you this question. What settled convictions do you have? Do we have? What settled convictions do you have? I've got to watch these two shows tonight. Is that a settled conviction you have? How about this one? My kid's success looks a certain way. Is that a settled conviction? So my question is, is is it easy to just make that happen? It's probably a settled conviction because a settled conviction is what's driving your decision making. It's kind of effortless in a way. You just kind of go with where that conviction takes you. It's holding you. How about I need to be appreciated for my service? Is that a settled conviction? How about I need to get my debt paid off? Is that a settled conviction? My kids' schedule has to look a certain way. Is that a settled conviction? I mean, really, what settled convictions are you known for? What settled convictions would the people around you say, that you clearly have? What are you known for? What settled convictions are you known for? Because they're going to be very apparent to everyone around you, probably not so apparent to you. I'll go to Dr. Moeller, Dr. Albert Moeller, who's the president of the seminary I graduated from. He says this. He says, a belief is something you hold, but a conviction is something that holds you. A belief is something you hold, but a conviction is something that holds you. So when it becomes a settled conviction, it's something that drives you. This is what Paul's talking about here. Beliefs that hold you firm when the winds begin to blow. When, beliefs that hold you when the winds begin to blow. So we're we're going to head, I'm going to flesh this out more in the weeks to come, but listen, I'm not just talking about beliefs that you cling to when you're going through some sort of big life struggle. Uh, yes, I'm including that, but not just that. And I know that's where most of our minds go. It's a, okay, so it's a tough life situation. I can think of this time in my life, and it was really tough, and, and I just held on to this conviction of God. And, and so, so I, yeah, that's awesome. I, I'm, not, I'm not demeaning that. I'm saying like day to day, every day, Every moment, what convictions keep a hold of you as the false teachings and the doctrines come that your own flesh feeds your mind and says, believe this and live this way. 
What convictions hold you in those moments? That's what I want to know. What convictions hold you when you get that phone call? What convictions hold you when that evil thought comes into your mind? We don't have to look as far as we think we have to for false teachers. A lot of times you just have to close your eyes and listen. As I'm not talking about, or what I am talking about is this. When the promise of happiness from the doctrine of seek self-pleasure without any stops blows, when that wind of doctrine blows, what settled conviction holds you? Is it that you're satisfied in Jesus Christ? That you need to look nowhere else or does your heart run with that because that conviction doesn't hold you tight there? Or what about the false doctrine that you are better off isolated from deep, meaningful relationships? Even relationships that feel like wounds inflicted sometimes. The Proverbs have something to say about that. What settled conviction holds you in the relationship that doesn't always feel good, but you know that this is what's best for my heart and my mind and my sanctification and my glorifying God? What settled conviction holds you there? Because if not, you'll get blown away. How about when life doesn't go exactly the way you wanted it to go today? What subtle convictions hold you tight? You see, a conviction is something that you don't easily navigate from. That's, that's Paul's point. He's saying, you don't have these settled convictions, and so you just get blown around. But a conviction is something that, that you don't get easily blown around with. I mean, some of us in here ride emotions like a roller coaster. You know why? Because maybe we have too many too few settled convictions. Guys, a settled conviction is not only something you say, but something you live by. Again, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about your children, so you don't live by the way you're called to live. You get blown around. I mean, all of you would say, listen, that, that you believe salvation by grace through faith. If you're a follower of Jesus, you would say that. But do you live that way? Like, do you make other people live by works around you? Do you make them perform or say enough things so that you would then accept them into your, gladly into your presence? Or do you make them earn their way? Right? Because the, the reality is if you do that with other people, then you live that way with God too. You make, you think you've got to earn your way into God's presence too. Again, thinking about settled convictions. They, this is the beautiful thing. If you look at your life over the past week, you will see on display your settled convictions. They'll be out there. That's a grace to us. I don't know if you realize that, but that's a grace to us to see that. But again, I want to encourage you, it shouldn't just be a, an individualistic effort to even assess these settled convictions. Invite someone into your life to do, to help with that. So, very quickly here, how do we develop settled convictions? How do we develop settled convictions? We should study your Bible an hour every day, pray for 30 minutes, and go to church every time the doors are open, then you should be fine, right? How do we develop settled convictions? That was a joke. I know y'all didn't laugh, but... How do we develop? So let's go back to Mark. Let's go back to Mark. The disciples and Peter were not blind. They saw him feed the 4,000. Peter even confessed that Jesus is the Christ. The blind men could see men, but they looked like trees. But ultimately, they didn't have eyes to see these things yet. They didn't have eyes to see what was going on yet. 
to see who Jesus was and what his plan had, had, had not yet become settled convictions that they saw, really saw, really believed, that would mature them and keep them steady amidst the storms and evil. <clears throat> so what is the key to having eyes to see that might develop settled convictions? Let's read on in Mark chapter 8, verse 34. So this is right after Jesus rebukes rebukes Peter and says that you have eyes not on the things of God, but on the things of man. He says this, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Let me just be straight to the point. The way to see God's kingdom is to become blind to yours. The way to see God's kingdom is to become blind to yours. The way to God's settled convictions is to forsake yours. The way to have eyes to see God's ways is to become blind to your ways. We deny ourselves. What do you think that means? We deny ourselves. Do you give up drugs and drinking and don't go to R-rated movies? I mean, is that what it means to deny ourselves? Really? It means to give up everything that serves you and your kingdom and to lay it down. That's what it means. To deny ourselves is to give up everything that serves our kingdom and to lay it down. To deny our self-righteousness, to deny our pride, to deny our plan, to deny our selfish desires, to deny our desire for individualism, to deny these things. We ask God to blind us to our kingdom so that we might have eyes to see His, that we lay it down. This is what Jesus rebuked Peter for. You have your mind, right? You have your eyes. Your eyes are set on the things of man and not set on the things of God. Because we will always be children tossed to and fro by the heat of life until we forsake man's kingdom and embrace God's kingdom. You know, the way up in maturity is to bend down and pick up your cross. You want to have eyes to see? Pick up your cross. Jesus has just gotten on them. You have eyes, but you cannot see. And then his response to all of that is, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow me. So what does it mean to carry a cross and follow Jesus? I would take us back to chapter 4, verse 13 of Ephesians. It means, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the stature of the fullness of Christ. It means we are walking in that direction. It means that we all together as a church grow in knowing and being convicted concerning the same things about Jesus. You know, as I said earlier, <clears throat> it's easy to see the batteredness of life. Like, to see like, I mean, some of us in here are really good at hiding it, but for the most part, most of us are not. You can kind of see the, I can see like, you know, where the ship 
someone forgot to put, the, you know, anything about like shipping and, and uh, like not shipping like FedEx, but like ships, right? Like little ships. And they put buoys on the side and as it's docked. And what does it keep, you know, if you forget to put those things, it just bumps and it bumps and it bumps or it'll bump the other ships and it gets broken and it's battered, moves back and forth. And our lives, all of our lives, mine included, look like this. We can and we can now, now some of that, right, some of that's out there and it presses in on us and we, and we can't change that. It's not under our sovereignty to change those things. It's God's sovereignty and God's provision and for our good. But he's also provided a way to stay steady when the winds come, to have stability and maturity when the winds come. He's called us to that and he's given us gifts to equip us for that. And he tells us here in verse 13 that we work, we, we do the ministry until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God. Guys, our own hearts and evil the own evil that's in our own flesh whips us around like it owns us sometimes. It just, you know, kind of like the, the tail wagging the dog. Like we just get whipped around. Whipped around because we, our settled conviction is not there. So I'm going to encourage you, church. I'm going to encourage you. We're talking about right here is Paul is pushing the people to go do the work of the ministry. The work that Jesus came and did, the work that Jesus will see completed. Our role by the power of Christ in us and God working in us, Philippians, right? That we're going to work that out. That we have a role in this. Certainly all by the power of the Spirit, all by God's grace, all of that. But we are working and we are working hard. We're going to talk more in the weeks to come. How do we develop settled convictions? I would encourage you. How, does, how are we not going to be tossed to and fro by the winds of every doctrine? What's he say right before this? That Jesus defeated sin and death, and as the spoils of his victory, he's given us what? Gifts. What gifts? The apostles and their words. His word. And he's given us pastors to help work this out. To live this. And, he's, and we know by other passages that he's given the body gifts to help each other and build each other. We do the work of the ministry. Get your eyes. Repent, right? Repent of your eyes being on your, on your kingdom. Deny yourself. And embrace God's kingdom. That only comes through repentance and faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that our hearts would be truly repentant. Father, I pray, I I know it's hard to deny ourselves of our kingdom, of our plans, of these things. Father, we become so blinded by our own little securing of happiness. Our own little securing of fulfillment and satisfaction. We, we go after it with settled conviction and then we find ourselves empty and battered and torn and, and blown around by the wind of that doctrine and many other false beliefs that we have. And Father, that the the way in this passage to deal with false doctrine is not to simply recognize the false doctrine, but to replace it with right doctrine. To replace it with knowledge of the Son of God. Father, the the greatest gift that we have to do that is the revelation of You in Your Word. And may we be students of it.
that we so recognize our need for it. We have a settled conviction that I must know Jesus and I must know Him in increasing fashion. For in Him there is freedom. In Jesus there is life. And that comes through knowing the Son of God. Loving the Son of God. Lord, may our lives proclaim the right settled convictions. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.